that sound like a plan? Yes. All right. Father God, we just pray that the word today would touch our hearts. Lord, that you would move powerfully, that we, as we continue to learn about you and set aside time to really encounter you and, and, and receive from you. Father God, just speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, use my lips to communicate, I pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was a lot of announcements, a lot of things to get through, but now here we are and we're talking about Jesus and it's awesome. I've really enjoyed it so far. We're up to chapter 2. So let's talk about what the Gospel of John is about. Firstly, just as a little recap on what we're covering in this series, Uh, the Gospel of John talks about Jesus' existence uh, before he was born here on earth. So it begins with in the beginning, just like Genesis does. Jesus was there in the beginning. Uh, It also talks about the miracles of Jesus. Uh, And so the power of God at work through his son, Jesus. And then teaching, um, Jesus' private teaching with his disciples. So that's why we're looking at John, so we can kind of glean from what he taught his disciples. Because are we not his disciples walking the planet now? Followers of Christ. And, And so that's what we're doing. And then... Uh, his death and resurrection, of course, uh, where Jesus died and he rose again. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's so good. So uh, our journey will take three parts. The gospel's broken up into three parts. Um, and so we've got chapters 1 to 12 for uh, Jesus' public ministry. Chapters 13 to 18 talk about private ministry. And then his death and resurrection is dealt with in the final few chapters of the book. So today's message is entitled Jesus the Authority. Jesus the Authority. And we're going through chapter two. Who got their text message? I sent a couple this week. Very good. Who's read John chapter two? There's a few hands. That's good. That's good. Well done. I'm impressed. So the highlights of this chapter really are water with a kick. Jesus turns water into wine. It's the first of his miracles um, written about in the book of John. And, uh, and then it talks about a cleaning frenzy in the temple. So we're going to be covering off on Jesus turning up the tables and getting all the money changes and that out uh, because it's the house of the Lord. And then seeing to the heart, the chapter concludes, where we get to see uh, the very heart and motives of Jesus and who he is and and just glean from that. So we're going to go straight into it. Let's get started. We're going to dive straight into it and we're going to read John chapter 2, starting with verses 1 to 2. It says this, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So Jesus is a party goer. He's invited to the party. In fact, uh, he, he, he was like the guest of honor. They wanted him there. They, every party wanted Jesus to come because he was cool. I don't know if it was the long flowing hair and the beautiful sandals. and the, That's the image we have of Jesus. But whatever it was, uh, he was a party goer. Many people have the wrong idea of what Jesus is like. And I've touched on that already a bit earlier after communion. For example, some see him. and I don't think anyone in this church would see Jesus as a killjoy. You know, the person that's this big authority figure that's up there who doesn't know how to have a good time. And if he walked, he wouldn't know how to have a good time if he walked into one. Um, and he's, he's thumping his Bible and he's preaching and it's that kind of Jesus. So he's not like that, but he's also not, some see him as the kind and meek and mild Christian baby Jesus. You know, and he's so precious and so cute and 
how could he be, you know, anything other than just cute? Because he's baby Jesus. Uh, but he's not just the Christmas baby Jesus either, because we know that he grows up to become Jesus the man, and uh, 100% man, 100% God. So, surprise, Jesus fits none of those categories. <laughs> I think you've, we've talked about that already. Uh, the event that we're looking at, the wedding, the first event was also the first of the seven miracles that are recorded in this book, and we'll cover them as we come to them. Uh, but Jesus, the party goer, he wasn't a stuffy religious leader. That Jesus wasn't like that. He, didn't, he wasn't someone who didn't know how to have fun. Who's seen The Chosen? A few people have seen The Chosen. Can I encourage you? Find it. It's online. It's free. And it is the best depiction in a long time of Jesus and his disciples. Look it up. Find it. It's called The Chosen. You can't not find it. And it's brilliant. But, and you will see from watching that Jesus isn't a stuffy religious leader. People wanted him at their parties and he accepted their invitations. And on this particular day, three days after he called um, Nathaniel to follow him, that's how we finished John chapter 1, Jesus is attending this wedding at Cana uh, with his mother Mary and his six new disciples. So since his earthly father Joseph is not mentioned um, in this point of the scripture or in any other events around this point, um, we assume that he died before Jesus entered into ministry. We have to assume that because it doesn't say anywhere Joseph died. Uh, So it's just using assumption. See, some Christians come across as party poopers. No one here. You just saw the ice part, the ice fight. So we know how to have a party. Uh, But some do. And and they're like killjoys. And and they make out like having a good time is a sin. (laughs) Other Christians get out like they go all out to enjoy themselves and help others do the same, but then they fail to use self-control. And so that's the other extreme, isn't it, where you go a little too hard. Mature Christians know how to have a good time without compromising their convictions. That's important to understand that. So don't use the, oh, Jesus went to a wedding and made water into wine, so I can party on! Yeah, no, don't do that. Uh, Christians shouldn't be people who are focused on religious activities either. So don't be the person, well, that's not a church event, so I can't go to that. (laughs) Like I would go and hang out with that riffraff. Uh, Don't be like that. Uh, The Bible doesn't encourage us to not socialise with people. It encourages us to hold true to our convictions. So don't compromise who you are, but don't be a snob either. How are you going to win people to Jesus if all you do is hang around with Christian believers? So there's a little challenge there from the outset. Uh, Let's move on to John chapter 2, verses 3 and 5. And it says, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. (laughs) I reckon she said it like that. Do it now. No. So we have these empty jugs. We have these empty jugs. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother knew who to go to for help. She went straight to her son, Jesus. And although his answer sounds harsh in English, what's up with you, woman? Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? He's not being rude or talking back to his mother. That's how we read it because that's how we comprehend it. But rather, woman was a respectful form of address in his culture. 
It's like calling a woman ma'am today or, you know, you call a male, sir, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. It's, it's actually being respectful. Um, since it wasn't normal to use this name with one's own mother, this is Jesus' way of putting distance between himself and Mary. He was helping her to understand that his transition from being her child to becoming Jesus, the Son of God, and stepping into ministry. It really is a reflection of that. Um, by saying his hour had not yet come, Jesus made it clear that he didn't do miracles on demand. So he's not like this, press a button and yep, boom, there it is. Uh, however, Mary recognised his authority and had faith in his ability to remedy the problem. She knew that he was the one that could fix it if anyone could. And when she told the servant, do what he says, that was her faith, trusting that. Because he's just said, what do you want with me, woman? I'm not doing this. It's not my time yet. But she just said, in faith, do what he says. Because she knew and had faith that Jesus could and would do something. Verses 6 to 10. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Just let them know I'm busy. Uh, and, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master. Here it is. Draw some out now, take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Wow. Let's, uh, can we get the lights? Because I'm going to show... Uh, from the chosen, the scene where Jesus turns water into wine. Take a look. Everyone, please step outside. Turn it up to. Just for a moment, Thomas. Once you make that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. What used to be a shapeless block of limestone or granite begins its long journey of transformation. And it will never be the same.
Go draw some out and serve it to the master of the banquet. Stop the music! Stop the music! Everyone, listen! I have something I would like to say. I would like to address the bridegroom and the bride families. At every wedding I've ever overseen, they serve the best wine first. And then, when the people have drunk freely, much later in the feast, they serve the poorer wine, the cheap stuff. <laughs> because by then, who is going to notice? <laughs> Am I right? But you, you have chosen now to serve the best wine I have ever tasted. Let us thank them for this unnecessary but honorable gesture. Son of Rafi and Dinah, to Sarah, daughter of Abner and Hila, be as pure and as fruitful as this wine. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. To Asher and Sarah. something wrong? Yes. I was. It's Mary, his mother. You know how mums have that eyeball? It's just like that. <laughs> oh, wow. It's incredible to see with your eyes, isn't it? These stone jars filled with water, they were common in Jewish houses. And for this wedding, the family uh, probably borrowed the best-looking ones that they could find uh, to make a, a really good impression, because that's what it's about, isn't it? And Jewish people washed their hands by pouring water over them before and after eating. So it was a purification ritual. And this ritual cleansed them from both physical dirt as well as symbolic dirt from touching people. Kind of sounds like corona uh, today, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and objects that were considered of bad um, influences or, you know, unclean things. It was an opportunity to clean as you came into the party. 
And although he didn't have to, Jesus responded to his mother's request. Who doesn't do what they're told by their mother? If you don't, if Jesus can do it, we can do it too. Amen? Parents all said? Amen. There it is. He told the servants to fill six jars with water all the way up to the brim, and doing so it would leave no room to add any wine or anything else, so there would be no doubt that God had done a miracle. And when the servants ladled it out, the water had turned into wine uh, with instant fermentation. So it was done straight away. There was, this was no small miracle. This was a sizable miracle. And I'll tell you what size. Um, about 2,880 cups worth of size is what was created. That's a lot of wine. Uh, Mary and the servants knew Jesus performed the miracle, but nobody else did. The servants delivered it to the banquet master who tasted it before serving it to the guests and he discovered it wasn't ordinary or inferior wine by any means. It was even better than the bridegroom had served previously. So so normally the hosts served the best wine at the beginning and you heard the story because by the end they're like, oh, whatever, they don't know what they're drinking. It could be just water and they probably wouldn't notice. Uh, The master of the banquet was surprised at the quality of the wine, as he would be, because it wasn't normal to be done that way. But I think Jesus is anything but normal, don't you? And he did it in such a way that just completely honoured God by providing the best, the best wine. Um, There's a quote, Craig S. Keener. There it is up there. And he is a North American academic and professor, and he said this, he put it this way. The description of the stone jars indicates that they contained enough water to fill a Jewish immersion pool used for ceremonial purification. Although Pharisees forbade storing such water in jars, some Jews were less strict. Thus, these large jars were being reserved for ritual purposes. But stone jars were common because they were less likely to contract ritual uncleanliness than those made of other substances. Using the jars for another purpose would temporarily defile them. And I love this. I love this because Jesus shows more concern for his friend's wedding than for a contemporary ritual. He was more concerned about being a blessing than following the legalistic rules of the day. Uh, I love it. I love it. Jesus didn't need the servant's help either, but watch this. When he performed this miracle, he could have miraculously filled the jars with wine without them first filling them with water. But he chose to include people as part of the miracle. He chose to include people in his work just like he does now. Does he not include us? We're involved in the work of Christ in our communities and in our worlds. Jesus wants to use us in the same way that he used those people to fill the jars with water. He uses us in small and in large roles uh, when we obey him to accomplish his purposes and demonstrate his power to the world. Let's uh, move on to John chapter 2, verse 11. And it says this, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of many. The first of many miracles to come. John didn't record all the miracles Jesus performed while he was here on earth. Instead, he selected a specific few. And he did that uh, because he did many signs in the presence of his disciples. But he chose ones that demonstrated who Christ was 
and that would lead people to believe in Jesus uh, and believing in his name. That's what John is trying to get us to do when he shares the miracles that he shares. Since turning the water into wine was Jesus' first miracle, um, this is important too, and I don't know if you've thought this before, but it means that stories of Jesus performing miracles as a child or as a teenager are debunked. There's no evidence of that um, in the Word of God. So, let's move to verses 12 to 17. And it says this, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, "'Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise.'" Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Uh, So Jesus goes on a cleaning frenzy in the temple. He's disgusted at what's going on. Jesus actually gets angry. And we talked about this when we talked about the emotion anger a little while back. It's not a sin to be angry because Jesus was angry. But it's how we deal with that anger and how we work through it. Do we just let it fester and become toxic or do we deal with it? You know, after the wedding, Jesus, his brothers, and his disciples went to Capernaum um, and his headquarters for ministry in Galilee. And Capernaum was an important city in that time since it was on a major trade route um, with a customs station and a Roman military post. So it was a significant place. Um, It had a synagogue and was home to several of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus did many miracles here and gave some of his most famous sermons in this area. Passover is a Jewish holiday. I'm sure we're all familiar with Passover. It's what's based around Easter time. And it comes in the spring, either March or April on our calendars. And it commemorates a time when Moses freed the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. And its meal is the basis for the Christian communion service. And we've already partaken in communion together today. It was also one of three pilgrim holidays when uh, Jewish males were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Uh, most often taking their families with them. And uh, so the city was packed with pilgrims at this time. And since many of the people were from out of town and did not bring animals with them to sacrifice to God in the temple, merchants and animals in the temple area were sold at inflated prices. Sound familiar? It's like our world, isn't it? Where there's great demand and not a lot of supply, you pay through the roof. Uh, Imagine the noise of hundreds of creatures, and we can probably imagine that, Where's Ka- is Carol here today? I don't think Carol is. Ka- yeah, there you are. Carol would know the sound I'm talking about of many animals wanting to be fed at once, right? <laughs> Imagine that sound of all these animals, uh, that, that, what they're making, um, and just the environment, the stench. They don't smell, according to you, but there is stench. <laughs> People probably had to hold their noses and watch what they walked on in order to get through the temple. There's animal poop everywhere. Can I say poop in church? Poop. Animal poop. Everywhere. It's everywhere. It's disgusting. And this is the temple we come to to worship God. So this is what would have angered Jesus. All Jewish males over the age of 19, except for slaves, had to pay an annual temple tax of half a shekel to support their house of worship. 
A shekel equaled three days' wages in Jesus' time. Aren't you glad you don't have to pay that much to come to church? Well, that would be great. No, we won't do that. Uh, So normally, worshippers paid this tax in person when they made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem if they didn't live there. So since foreign coins were not acceptable for offerings or the animal temple tax, money changers made their living by exchanging foreign money for temple currency. And they charged, again, ridiculous fees to change your money, much like anyone been overseas and changed your money and paid a fee? No thanks. Is it any wonder Jesus was angry? Can we see the picture now? Why Jesus would be so angry? All these people came to worship God and the merchants and money changers were taking advantage of these people and, and, and taking their fees and their money and exploiting the situation. Their greed made it hard for others, especially the poor people, to come and worship because they couldn't pay the exorbitant fees. So Jesus expressed his anger at sin uh, but did not lose control like we so often do with our anger. Uh, so it's important to understand that. All right. Verses 18 to 22. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So, show us the proof. That's what they're saying. Show us the proof. After Jesus' cleaning frenzy in the temple, uh, people wanted to know who he thought he was. Who are you coming in here and turning up tables and making a mess? Show us proof. Anyone who charged in and acted like that, claiming the temple was his father's house, was suspect. (laughs) Is is this a rogue agent? What's going on? What's this fellow doing? Either he was nuts um, or he was the expected Messiah. And they wanted proof for him to claim to be Messiah. Jesus, however, wasn't going to be manipulated by the people uh, into doing miracles on demand and proving himself. Instead, he issued a counter-challenge, prophesying about his coming death and resurrection. But the people didn't get it, obviously, (laughs) at the time. But when, in hindsight, it's a beautiful thing, right? When we look back on it. They thought he was talking about the temple building where they were actually standing. And, and it's true, it would take a mega miracle. It's taken 46 years to build this thing and you're going to rebuild it in three days. Three years later, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus' disciples finally understood what he said. And this is where we get into the heart of the matter. 23 to 25 says this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus knows us on the inside out, doesn't he? After the temple incident, Jesus, didn't, Jesus did do some miracles. As a result, some people professed to believe in him. Praise the Lord. That's awesome. But he knew they didn't fully understand who he was yet. They still didn't get it. They were looking for a political king and someone that was fit uh, for the position that they were expecting to be filled. Other people saw him only as a miracle worker, um, much like, I guess, a, a miracle evangelist person coming through town and seeing healings and that kind of thing. But he knew the depth or perhaps the shallowness of their faith. 
uh, he wasn't impressed by their words. See, belief in Jesus comes uh, in several varieties. Let's talk about them. Some people believe for the wrong reasons, because of what he's done for them or what they hope he'll do. Some believe with their minds and they agree to Jesus being God's son, but that's it. Some believe with their emotions, but the initial belief fizzles when the emotional moment is gone. Others believe with their hearts and they commit their whole selves to Jesus as saviour from their sins and allow him to guide them each and every day of their life. The question I want to ask us today is what level of belief do we have? What is the foundation of our belief? Is it, was it made on an emotional whim one day? You know, I felt right, so I just did it. Is it head knowledge? Where you know who he is, but do you know in your heart who Jesus is? Or do you follow him with your whole heart? And that's my prayer, that believers in Christ would have a strong foundation in who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and how it affects our lives having someone to pay the price and the penalty for us. That's a solid foundation. Let's wrap this chapter up because we've come to the end of chapter two. While attending a wedding, Jesus turned water into wine and it was better wine than the host had already served. There was the miracle of turning water to wine, which was the first of several signs that pointed to Jesus's deity, Jesus being God. Jesus drove the animal merchants and money changers out of the temple area, charging them with turning God's house of worship into a marketplace. And then lastly, Jewish authorities demanded a sign from Jesus to prove his authority for cleansing the temple. And instead of providing an immediate sign, he told them about his future death and resurrection. The challenge I want to bring us right now as I come to a close is, uh, who is your king? What is Jesus to you? Let's ask ourselves, what is the fundamental basis of our faith right now? Why do I trust in Jesus? What is my motive? Who is your king? Can we get the lights and have the sound up again? No other king could vanquish the war horse or silence the warrior's rage while riding the lowly back of a donkey. No other king could break the dominion of darkness, the tyranny of evil, with a reign of grace and a kingdom of peace. No other king could give his life for the redemption of rebels, his wealth to welcome the outcast. Jesus is that king, the king of glory, son of the living God. Not just another king, not just another prophet, not just another teacher. He was the one the world had been waiting for. The one to deliver us from captivity, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He is the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the one to establish God's reign and rule, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. 
This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the one prefigured to Noah in the flood, the one promised to Abraham, the one guaranteed to Moses before he died, the one promised to David during his reign, the one revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the one predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. He is our Jesus, and there is no other king like him. He is our God, our glory, our victorious Savior. There is no other king like him. There is no other king. Wow. No other king. The question I want to ask now is, is he your king? People online watching this at home or watching this after it's been uploaded, is Jesus your king? Is he your foundation of your faith? We can't meet the standard without him. God set his law in stone, 10 commandments, and we fail every day, don't we? There are commandments that we break because we're not perfect. We've got this thing called free will. Yay! (laughs) And we make choices that aren't right at times. But we can't pay the price that we deserve for breaking that law. That's why Jesus came. There's no other king that can come and take your place. No other king. There's no other king that's alive. Jesus is alive. All your other religions can't speak of a God that's alive. Their God's dead. He's a monument, a figurine, a whatever, a memory. But Jesus is alive. And I want to encourage us to open up our hearts to Him right now. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. Right across this place, I just want to give that challenge. Is Jesus your King? Have you surrendered your life completely to Jesus Christ? Our authority, as we've learned today, the authority. He comes in and He washes our sin away and pays the penalty by His death on the cross for us so that we can live lives that are free from condemnation of sin, free from guilt, shame, all those things are dealt with at the cross of Jesus. Is He your King? Have you surrendered your life to Him? If you haven't done that and you're in this place or if you're at home watching online, I want you just in just a moment to lift your hand and say, Pastor Jeremy, I need to let this King into my heart. I need to accept Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. And maybe you've done it before and you'd like to recommit your life today. What a great place in church or tuning in online to be able to do that. So if you've done that before and you want to refresh that relationship with your King, would you just lift up your hand right now in this moment, whether that's the first time that you've done this before, whether it's something you're wanting to do afresh. Yeah, I see hands over there. That's great. That's great. People online lifting their hands at home, opening up their hearts to Jesus. Can we just say this prayer together? It's not a magic prayer. There's no power in this prayer, but there's power in the confession. When you confess Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, 
We've got it there, Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So say this prayer after me. Let's all say it together. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you came and surrendered your life for me. Lord, I now confess with my mouth that you are Lord. I make you Lord of my life. I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead so that I could be saved. So in this moment, I surrender my life completely and fully to you. I choose to live my life for you for the rest of my days. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we give God some praise? He's awesome. <laughs> God is good. Amen. There's one more thing I want to do before we close today. And Ryan and Crystal are here with us. I'm not going to drag you up the front, although I could, but I won't do that. I won't do that. Would you reach your hands out towards them and just let's just pray a blessing on these guys for the work that they're doing in Clifton, for their church. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for Ryan and Crystal right now being able to join us today and have a weekend with us here in Stanthorpe. But I just pray that... Lord, that something is deposited in their spirits, even from today. Holy Spirit, touch both of them. Touch Ryan as he brings forth the word in, in, in season for Clifton when he gets to speak. And Lord, lead that church with confidence along with Crystal, Lord. I just pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would encourage them, that they would encounter you in such a fresh, new way, Lord God, that you would do a, a new thing in their hearts today, Lord, that they would carry back to Clifton, Father God, and be a blessing to the people there. We pray for that church. May many people gather in that place. May they be drawn to that house, that lighthouse in Clifton, Lord, and come hungry and repentant and, and willing to serve. Lord, bring people alongside these guys to serve and bless the community of Clifton, I pray. And, and Lord, as we continue in relationship together, our churches together, Lord, in unity, I just pray, God, that you would help us and inspire us to be a blessing to them also. Holy Spirit, lead them and guide them. Touch their hearts today, I pray, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Give these guys a hand. They're doing a great job. <laughs> awesome. Be blessed. We're done. Shall I pray God's blessing over you? Father God, bless your church. Lord, lead us and guide us. Holy Spirit, be in our hearts and in our homes as we go about our week. God, give us opportunity to share about you with someone this week, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. There's coffee.